0: God and other Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Fatima Jalmain Rodriguez to the show. Fatima is the executive director of the nonprofit charity Camp Ronald McDonald for Good Times, which works to create a positive, long lasting impact on children with cancer and their families by providing fun, safe, cost free year round camp programs. Fatima got her BA at USC and her master's at UT Austin, and she has devoted her professional life to community building and empowerment, especially in Latinx and marginalized communities. Her bio also says that she loves to do makeup for her friends and family, and it's really very sad that she is not here in person with me right now doing my makeup in anticipation of us taking an awesome selfie. Guess that's one more thing on my to-do list for 2021. Welcome to the show, Fatima. (laughs)
1: Hi. I'm so happy to be here. I love that little end part.
0: (laughs) What do you think? Do you think that uh, I can get my makeup done at some point in 2021? Of
2: course. I'd
1: be happy
0: to do your makeup. All right. All right, Fatima. Tell me about Proyecto Pastoral. It's a grassroots organization in Boyle Heights and East LA, where you first began working after you got your master's, right?
1: Correct.
0: I mean, it just sounds like amazing work. And I look forward to hearing about (sighs) your story. And this sounds very powerful, certainly as being someone that's been living in Los Angeles now for 20 years. I know about the changes that are going on in Boyle Heights and what have been going on over the last 10 years in particular. And so I'm interested to know what your work was there.
1: Yeah. So I got started at Proyecto Pastoral in, I believe it was 2006. And like you said, it was my first job out of UT Austin. And I was really intentional when I was moving to, to just start my professional career to find a nonprofit organization that was focused on grassroots organizing and really involving the community and the change that it was aspiring for. And so I spent a good amount of time, I would say almost a year, really vetting different organizations and volunteering. And and I just wanted to make sure I had the right fit because I've always been so passionate about doing good in the world and wanting to feel like I was part of real change. And so when I came across Proyecto Pastoral, I was just, I fell in love immediately with the organization. Oftentimes people know of Dolores Mission or Homeboy Industries. And so Proyecto started from that same social justice movement in the late 80s, early 90s that was started by Father Greg Boyle and also um, the women in the community of Boyle Heights. So it was really a social justice movement that was going on in response to all the gang violence that was happening. And Proyecto has an early childhood education center. They have a homeless shelter, community organizing, after-school program. At the time, they had a thrift store. So it's really a comprehensive organization that, again, looks to involve the community itself in all of the changes that um, it's aspiring to, to realize and, and really focused on social justice. So I was there for almost eight years. I was the started as a development associate, so started as um, just kind of entry-level fundraiser. And by the time I left Proyecto, I was the associate director, so I was the right hand to Cynthia Sanchez, the executive director.
0: Well, that is very cool. It sounds like amazing work. I've done a little bit of this work in my life, and I know that whenever I've really involved myself in social justice stuff and and really involving myself in communities, especially communities for me that were not like the communities I grew up in, uh, I I know that that stuff is very powerful, very influential, very transformative. Clearly, it's something that you locked into at a young age, we'll we'll talk more about that. But I know you're not from Los Angeles, you are a Californian, you're from San Francisco, it says, right?
1: Well, I was born in San Francisco, but I do consider myself a native Angelino because my parents were there for just a year. They met in college at University of San Francisco, and then we moved back down to Los Angeles where my mom's originally from when I was just a year old. So I mostly grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, so like Montebello, Alhambra, Whittier area. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Okay, well, there's lots for us to get to, but first before we get there what'd you have for breakfast?
1: Uh, Oh yeah. I remember you asked this question. (laughs) I love how (laughs) this can
0: really catch people off guard. It is one of my favorite things. Okay, Um, go ahead.
1: I had coffee and then I had a bolillo, which is like French bread essentially with beans and cheese, which is not like a typical (laughs) breakfast for me, but it was one of those that's really, it's part of like me being mom on the go and trying to Uh, get my girls together. They started school this week, so it was like a rushed breakfast, but it was delicious. And so you cooked it? No, I bought it from La Monarca, which is a coffee shop in Boyle Heights. Oh, yeah. La Monarca. Yeah.
0: That's a nice shout-out. Well, that's lovely. Uh, What a wonderful breakfast. This is a thrilling breakfast. (laughs) All right, let's jump in. How and Mm -hmm. when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life?
1: So... I was introduced to God at a very young age. I mean, I have a very interesting relationship with God. I feel like God was just embedded in my psyche as a child. I don't feel like I can't really tell you like my mom or anyone in my family really introduced me to God. I feel like I had a relationship with God even as a as a young child. My mother was brought up Catholic and my father who is actually um he was a Immigrant from Algeria was Muslim, so I grew up with both oh, faiths. Cool. And um, yeah, my parents separated when I was five, so I would say I grew up more Catholic, and I went to Catholic school. But I did spend time with my dad like every other weekend, and so like when he was practicing Ramadan and you know fasting, I would I would practice with him, and How cool. uh, so. Yeah, so I learned a little bit about the the Muslim religion because of my dad, but I would say, you know, definitely grew up more Catholic. I mean, my mom wasn't like a hardcore Catholic. We were, what did they say, like seasonal Catholic or holiday Catholic, where we would go to church for the Catholic holidays. So that was us. And my brother and I weren't baptized until I was five when I was baptized, Basically, once my parents split up is when my mother baptized me because, you know, my dad was was very much against it. He wanted us to grow up Muslim or at least, I think, have a, a choice and decide what you know religion we wanted to participate in. And once I was in high school, I think that's when I really started to work on my spirituality on another level. And um, I went to Ramona Convent, which is a high school in Alhambra, all-girls school, and Religion was obviously part of our curriculum and I started to go to mass on my own almost every Sunday and just really started to take charge and ownership of my spirituality, you know, as a, as a young woman. And so it's been a very important part of my life.
0: I mean, something that's really striking is hearing your mother get to essentially win that argument with your father, right? In the settlement of the divorce, she gets to baptize her children. And I wonder, when you look back on your parents' relationship, do you think that religion was the driving force in possibly the end of their marriage?
1: You know, honestly, I'm not sure that that was the reason. I think that there were a lot of reasons. I think they weren't necessarily the best match for each other. And When my father and my mother split up, my father actually went back to Algeria and he was there for two years. So it wasn't necessarily a joint decision that was made. My mom just decided to baptize us because my dad wasn't around anymore. So when he came back, he was actually very upset that we were baptized. And, you know, kids are very honest. So I'm sure I just told him and he was really upset about it. So... You know, I I think they split up just for, like, a myriad of reasons of them just not being a good fit. What I do know as an adult, seeing how my father was and then my mom, I, I honestly think it's a miracle that they ended up together to begin with because yeah. they're so <laughs> different.
0: So your father leaves for two years, between mm-hmm. five and seven. Do you remember
1: those years as a kid? Yeah, I mean, vaguely— I do remember when my dad left, though, like I do have a really vivid memory of that moment because I was so close to my dad. I mean, yeah, like that intimate, really close, loving, nurturing relationship that kids have with their parents, like my dad and I had that. And so when he left and he when he announced that he was leaving, we didn't know he was going to be gone for so long. Um, And he really wanted my mom and my brother and I to go with him. But my mom knew, like, if she were to go with my dad, we might not come back. You know, my life would have been very different had my mom said yes to go with my dad, but she decided to stay back. You know, and why he left is still a little bit unclear to me. I mean, from what I understand, his dad was really sick, and so I think that was one of the main reasons. But the reason why he ended up staying, I'm not 100% clear on that. But I do remember just feeling like, You know, I wanted to, like, try to sneak into his suitcase so that I could go with him. I wanted to be with him. And so I think that, like, kids are so resilient. And so whatever kind of trauma I might have experienced, I think I just adjusted and moved forward without having my dad around.
0: Were your parents going to get divorced before your father went back to Algeria? Because you said that your father wanted your mother to bring you two along with him, which implies Mm -hmm. to me that maybe he didn't want to get divorced, but his leaving was the catalyst for something that was supposed to happen anyway?
1: I think so. I mean, I think it was pretty clear to my mom that the relationship was not healthy. There were a lot of dynamics that just were not good for her. You know, my mom being young and in her 20s and I mean, I can imagine now, as an adult myself, how hard that must have been for her Mm. just to make that decision. And And so she
0: was a young woman, too.
1: Yeah, she was, yeah, very, very young. And the decision for her to to just be a single parent, I mean, you know, very, very challenging. And so I think for her, she knew that the relationship or wanted the relationship to end. I don't know that my dad felt that way. I think my dad wanted to stay together, but they both would agree that they were not a good match for each other.
0: Wow. Okay. So what is it like when your father returns? So two years later, do you have a strong feeling this, does that connection just light up for you all of a sudden he returns and then he's in your life again weekly?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was, I remembered my dad and had that connection with him and, and was just thrilled when he came back. My brother, on the other hand, because my brother was only two years old when he left, it was not the same. I mean, my brother was like, who is this guy? Mm. So we were always navigating through that dynamic um, throughout our childhood. I would see my dad usually every other weekend, but it wasn't consistent. I mean, our religion actually at one point created a big rift in our relationship. and so as a young woman like in my late teens, early 20s, I was believed so strongly in, in my Catholic religion and my father was very much believed in his Muslim religion. We butted heads a lot and so we spent at least like two years not talking to each other because because of our beliefs. Wow. yeah.
0: What age did that start?
1: Yeah, I think it was like soon after I graduated from high school, that we, I just remember us driving to his home in Palmdale, which is, you know, a long drive from LA and just having this really intense debate about, you know, which religion is right, which way of understanding God is correct. And I just remember him dropping me off and, and feeling like, okay, I think this is the last I'm going to talk to my dad, at least for a while. And for my dad, he felt like he didn't identify with me. He, he felt like this is not a child I would have raised to be so like staunchly Catholic.
2: Hmm. I don't know.
1: I guess that was his defense mechanism. And he also was just disappointed that he wasn't able to be the father that he wanted to be.
0: And did your brother ever develop that connection with your father that your father would have wanted with both of his children? And did your brother also follow in your Catholic faith?
1: No, my brother did not follow <laughs> In and, and Catholic faith. Oh, there's strongly. definitely something
0: behind this laughter.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just laughing because my brother is like, he's such a free spirit. And I mean, he definitely has God in his life and has a relationship with God. But uh, and what he would come with me to church on rare occasion too. But, you know, in terms of the relationship with my dad, it was very tumultuous for my brother and my dad. I mean, my brother, he would get into trouble a lot at school at a very young age. I mean, he was in kindergarten and was suspended because Whoa. he was such a troublemaker. Yeah, he, uh, so, and the, my brother's just always been like, doesn't make mean any harm. You know, it's all like playful, but definitely, you know, as a kid was, was getting into trouble. So then my mom would call on my dad and just be like, you know, help me with just raising your son. Like help me, you know, get him on the right path. And so I think my dad just didn't know the right way. And he was really harsh with my brother. Mm. And so they didn't really have that opportunity to develop a close relationship. I'd say towards the end of my dad's life, they definitely started to develop a closer relationship. But when we were kids, I mean, if it wasn't for me pushing my brother to like go visit with my dad every other weekend, because I didn't want to go on my own. I wanted my brother to be with me. I don't know if they would have had a relationship at all.
0: Do you remember why you wanted your brother to be there instead of just going alone? Was it more for your brother or more for you?
1: It was more for me, probably. I mean, my, I think when you're a kid, it's as intuitive as children are, it's hard to put words to those feelings. Mm. And so it was just like really heavy energy at my dad's house. His wife, you know, his new wife. Between the two of them, it was like kind of a toxic environment. I mean, nothing like abusive, but just the energy was really heavy. Hmm. You know, they were chain smokers. They had like 12 cats. It was just like a weird vibe. Hmm. And because I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I did know that like I wanted to spend time with my dad. I also felt guilty if I ever didn't want to spend time with my dad, but I felt like I wanted to still be there for him. But I knew that like when I was there at my dad's, if my brother was there, I felt much safer.
0: Right on. Okay. This is a good place to take the first break, all right? Okay. (laughs) We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. (laughs) At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Fatima, and she was just talking about some of the difficulties that begin to arise in her early relationship with her father when she's a teen, her father is remarried. Does he have another child after you and your brother?
1: Yes, so he has uh, my sister Jasmine who is 10 years younger than me.
0: And then so your years in high school when you were referencing the, the difficulty, it's also you're trying to keep a relationship with your father going or experience it anew while he's raising a new young
1: child. Yes. Yeah. So that was definitely challenging. I mean, I think that just navigating the relationship between my mom and my mom and dad didn't talk to each other. So whenever there was something that needed to be discussed or dealt with, my mom would send a message to me and then I would have to tell my dad.
2: Wow. So
1: that really made things complicated with my dad because he felt like oftentimes, you know, we were just going to visit him because we wanted something or needed something. Mm. So, so that was hard. And then I think there was definitely resentment against my sister. I mean, not like anything terrible, but it was just, just to see that they would go on family trips together and they would take Disney cruises and do all these awesome things. And when my mom would ask my my dad or ask me to ask my dad for like help with like, you know, buying books or like other things we needed for school since we were going to Catholic school, you know, my dad would push back. And so just to see that they did have the means to do all these other things, but then, you know, my dad wasn't willing to step up in other ways was definitely disappoint disappointing you know
0: wow that's harsh and was was your younger sister raised uh in the Muslim faith
1: not really I mean a a little bit but I think that my dad would kind of go in and out of practicing and by the time I was in my like mid-20s he was wouldn't really identify being Muslim and so I think he had just a broader view on spirituality that we both shared, actually. And that's what brought us back together.
0: All right. Well, that's that's a lovely place to leave that. Mm-hmm. Now we need to learn a little bit more about what's going on with your mom. So she's kind of doing something that's, as someone that does not know your mother at all, I mm-hmm. can be as sympathetic as possible to how difficult that position must be. But it is a difficult position for you to be in to be the go-between at that age between two adults who are divorced and are experiencing difficulties and you're the messenger, Mm -hmm. that's a difficult position to be in that, that speaks to how difficult of a position your mother felt like she was in. But what was she doing at the time? And what was your life Mm -hmm. like at home?
1: Well, I mean, my mom has always been very smart, very ambitious. She has built a really tremendous career in the banking industry and so I think now as a parent myself, I mean, you just have a better understanding of like the type of sacrifice it takes for her to have raised two kids on her own. So she was always there for my brother and I in, in so many ways. She was definitely not as like affectionate and loving as my father was, which I think we always shared that bond. I mean, as I got older, my mom definitely became more expressive in like an affectionate way about her love. I mean, that has to do more with like her dynamic with her mother and how she was raised and the trauma that she experienced there. But in terms of like her relationships with men, she she was definitely like dating and there were different men that she had a relationship with. They lived with us and, you know, one of her relationships had kids and, and we all lived together for a little bit. That didn't work out.
0: So she has... A short-lived relationship
2: Mm
0: -hmm. where you, for a brief period of time, have two step-siblings. Right. Then that relationship ends, and so does your relationship, essentially, with your step-siblings. And Mm -hmm. then...
1: Yeah. So that relationship ended. It was not an easy (laughs) end to that relationship. But that ended. My mom was on her own for a couple more years, which I felt like, you know, was was a good time just being with our mom, just three of us. And then my mom ended up buying a new home on her own. I remember just like feeling so proud of her. And, um, you know, she purchased her home in Whittier. And then I would say, I don't know even how long after she bought her house, she ended up reconnecting with her high school sweetheart, who they then ended up getting married when I was 13 years old. He has five children himself, but They live in Oregon. Uh, Well, three of his five kids live in Oregon. The other two, I think, lived in Victorville. But it was really the the three that live in Oregon that would come during the summer and stay with us, too. So, you know, I would say, like, off the bat, that relationship was definitely very rocky.
0: Did they have any biological children?
1: No, they didn't.
0: So five more step-siblings.
1: Right. Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You have quite the network. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> you yeah. Were, you were networked from an early age.
1: Yeah, for All sure. Right. Okay, so, go, go
0: on. It was tumultuous.
1: Yeah, it was pretty tumultuous. I mean, I would say one of the big things that happened when I was just starting high school, so I guess I'm 13, 14 years old, my mom, brother, and Eddie, which is her, um, her husband, drive up to Victorville and I stayed back because I was trying out for the cheerleading team, which is so hilarious now because I'm like not a cheerleader at all, uh, <laughs> but decided to try out for the cheerleading team. And so when they're on their way, way back from Victorville, they end up getting into a major car accident. Oh no. They're in a Bronco and the Bronco ends up flipping over like six times. My mom's husband is thrown out of the car And he had previously been in in another accident. So his leg was already in what's called an external fixator. That's why he was thrown from the car because he wasn't actually strapped into the car. He wasn't Um, wearing a
0: seatbelt because it was uncomfortable for his leg or something?
1: Exactly. Whoa. Exactly. So that ended up being just a major stress in our life after that accident happened. Thankfully, my brother was fine. I mean, he had some... Damages. He had some injuries to his head and and his arm and stuff. Um, my mom was okay. She was the one driving. But talk about like God mm. interceding. Like the fact that I like I mentioned, I am not the type to be a cheerleader. I'm not coordinated enough for that. Mm. But the fact that I felt like brave enough to try something so out of my comfort zone, I feel like was one of those times where God interceded in my life because. I have no idea what would have happened to my brother or to me, you know, if I had also been in the car. Mm. So, yeah, at a certain point, once Eddie is kind of like more healed, he ends up having to serve some time in jail because he was convicted for um, involuntary manslaughter. And so he had to spend a year in prison in in Chino. And For something else, you mean? Yeah, for something else a different accident that he was in. The the reason that I, his leg was right. already injured. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. you know, that uh, that time was was challenging for my brother and I because we would go with my mom to go visit with him you know, in a men's institution in Chino and like when you're a teenage girl, that is like not the ideal environment to be in, you know? Right.
0: right. Are you, do, are you just talking from like the cat call perspective of that or?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm, totally. Sure. And just like, I don't know if you've ever been into a prison, but just the process of having to be checked and make sure, sure like you're not bringing in contraband, just all of that experience is not something that I think, you know, anyone, especially a child or teenager, should experience.
0: I mean, I think I've been in a prison once, but it's not like uh, I had to go there because there was a reason, a familial connection and an obligation. And Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a moment, like even as a listener, I am feeling overwhelmed at the teenage you of (laughs) what you're trying to filter at this time in your life. Yeah. Did you feel Mm -hmm. like you had other people around you that were living a similar life to you? Were you in a high school where it was like your life was noticeably more fractured than most Mm -hmm. people around you? Did you feel that at that age? Were you kind of trying to hide this Mm -hmm. part of your life? Or did you feel like you were in an environment where for whatever reason, lots of kids were dealing with this kind of stuff?
1: I don't think that I really saw myself as that different or like I was dealing with anything that was very challenging. I mean, I feel like overall, you know, my mom did her best to just support us and create a loving environment. So even though like I'm describing these really intense and difficult situations, that wasn't necessarily my day-to-day
0: life. Mm. Your mother's a strong foundation throughout all of this.
1: Yeah, totally. And, And I think doing her best again, to raise her kids and have a relationship with her husband, which I think in hindsight, like, again, as an adult, I can understand where she's, I think she would compartmentalize a lot, like I'm being a good mom and doing what I can for my kids. And now I'm trying to be a good wife and have my relationship with my husband. I feel like she would compartmentalize the two, even though we were under the same roof in the same household. You know, For me, probably the reason as a high school student, I clung on to my spirituality and my religion so, so much was because mm. of what I was going through. I think that that's really what gave me strength. I mean, I had, of course, I had amazing friends. I mean, to go to an all-girls school, it, it's such a supportive environment. At least that was my experience. I feel like before I went to Ramona, I kind of had a little bit of a cloud over my head where... You know, I was pretty negative and passive aggressive. And I just, you know, wasn't like my best self. And I feel like Ramona really helped me develop into a better version of, of myself. And so part of it was the religious aspect, you know, the academics, but definitely the relationships that I developed with my with my friends who are still my best friends to this day. And I feel like my friends definitely were a strong foundation for me. My best friend, Sema, who, you know, was my best friend in high school. Like I would spend a lot of time at her house. Um, her family would take me on their family vacation. Okay. So I had almost like a second family. So I definitely had a lot of like loving relationships in my life, my mother included, but you know, everyone deals with challenges and there there are moments in your life that are really formative in a positive and a more challenging sense. I don't think that I necessarily ever felt super overwhelmed. I mean, there were definitely moments that were extremely challenging, but I feel like I had a lot of support and I had a lot of tools primarily because of my connection with God to help me navigate through, through those things with ease and grace.
0: Okay. Fatima, your youth and early life is really interesting. And it it has already occupied a lot of this show. And we have to move on from here with your spiritual journey and get to some of these major life events that continue. So you mentioned that you were really devout in high school and this drives a wedge between your father and you. What happens from here in your spiritual journey that one, Leads you to discover social justice as the rest of your life's work, and two will eventually lead you back to a connection with your father.
1: Yeah, I think that you know, as is typical for a lot of people, once you go to college and grad school, I think you're views and perspectives start to really broaden because you meet people from different places outside of your community, outside of your, you know, normal day-to-day life from high school. So uh, just my views on, on religion and spirituality really did start to broaden. You know, one of my friends, Espy, her sister Celestial is, you know, also a good friend of mine. She introduced me to conversations with God written by Neil Donald Walsh, that was a big eye-opener for me as well. And I think also, oh goodness, I can't remember the name of the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle mm-hmm. was also a book that I read when I was in my early 20s. So I feel like my affinity towards Catholicism continued throughout, but I was definitely open to understanding other religions, other you know, ways of, of interpreting and, and understanding God and being in relationship with God. And I think that's at that point when I was in grad school, decided to reach out to my father and and reconnect with him. I remember, I believe I wrote him a letter and just told him that my understanding of God and spirituality had just really broadened and that I was more in touch with this understanding of the universe and energy and spirit. And so I think that For him, he had had a similar journey himself and had also brought in his perspective. And so once we reunited while I was at UT, we would have some really long, beautiful philosophical conversations. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about my dad was that he was such an intellectual and and really liked to talk about God and energy in the universe. And in a way that I really couldn't talk about that with with many other people. What's funny is like, I think what initially broke us apart, our understanding and relationship with God as it evolved and brought us back together in a really profound way.
0: Yeah. That's a very beautiful story. And I'm glad you got to have that in your life. So when does your father die and how did he die?
1: My father died five years ago. He, I mentioned earlier that he and his wife were chain smokers. So they actually both passed away from lung cancer. Wow. Yeah. So that's how he passed. Fortunately, he got to meet both of my daughters, but he was in his early sixties. So he definitely was not ready to leave this earth. And I mean, till his dying breath said, you know, don't give up on me. I'm still going to fight this. So he, oh my he had, he really had hope to live, you know, um, and, and fought the good fight. But yeah, so it's about five years ago that he died.
0: And your stepmother around the same time?
1: My stepmother passed away a year and a half ago. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: What is the spiritual fallout of that for you? I mean, obviously, it's painful to lose a parent, mm-hmm. but...
1: You know, what's interesting is, like, when my father first passed, I just... And I don't know if it's because of, like, different traumatic events in my life and how I process things that are hard now, like, I don't know if, like, as the things I experienced as a child has impacted how I process trauma now. So, like, at first when my dad passed, I didn't really cry. I wasn't, you know, I was just kind of, like, pretty stoic, and then I think it wasn't until I started to write about, like, a memory of him when I was little, that I broke down and cried, but I didn't spend a lot of time like crying over his passing. I think a lot of it too is because we were so like, our relationship was so in and out. Like even when we reconnected, he lived in Dallas, he lived in Las Vegas. We were never like around Mm -hmm. each other enough for me to feel a major void once he was actually gone, if that makes sense. Because he wasn't like, he was, the consistency was so fractured and then I think also the fact that like we talk about energy, we talk about that we are still going to be connected even when we pass. And I actually had a dream—I can't remember how long after—where my dad came to me in my dream and hugged me. And I, I 100% believe that he actually came to me in my dream because I felt it on such a like visceral level, to the point where like the next day I'm like calling my friends and telling them and like crying bawling because i was like my dad actually came and visited me so i think that's part of the way that i've been able to like process his passing is just to know that we're still connected
0: yeah oh that's lovely all right we're gonna take our last break and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with Fatima. And Fatima, there is a, I want to say the word strength, but it's almost more like a centeredness in the way (laughs) that you tell your story. It's not that I don't feel like you're being disingenuous in any way. You're totally honest and open. And you're emotionally open about, in the sense that you're being clear about how hard something was. But Something you keep coming back to in the conversation is that you had this immense, very resonant connection to God from a very young age. And that that connection has given you a lot of strength. And Mm -hmm. it must mean that that connection led you to the nonprofit work, to the social justice work. And, And so I guess my question is, when did you know that you were going to devote your professional life to that?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say probably in high school, I didn't have a clear path on what that was going to look like. I knew that I wanted to be of service. And I mean, at one point I, like for a hot second was like, maybe I want to be a nun. or oh, maybe, right. yeah. Cause I wasn't really interested in dating, you know? Uh, so I, I thought maybe that was my path, but soon realized that that wasn't it. So I would say even in college, I still wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be an academic, which is why I went into grad school. And then once I was in grad school, I felt like it was too disconnected from the realities of working in the community on a day-to-day basis. I didn't want to just be writing about change. I, I wanted to feel like I was actively involved in the work of it. I mean, not to say academic work is so important and is part of social justice and the change that we need. I just felt like I wanted to be more of a day-to-day practitioner than an academic.
0: Right. So you people have different skills and some people are suited exactly. to one thing or another and you got to go where your heart goes.
1: Exactly. So I knew very early on, I mean I would say high school that I definitely wanted to to be in service to and with others and I I definitely think that was linked to my connection with God and my spirituality. I and and I feel like I've definitely in my career have been guided. You know, it's not always like a clear path and it's not like there, I mean there are moments where I feel lost or like anyone else or where I don't feel connected or, you know, I doubt myself, but I, I always come back to my intuition to signs. When those things happen in that way, that for me is like, okay, God's giving me that sign of like, this is the direction I'm supposed to be headed in. So, I mean, in my professional career, I've been um, in the nonprofit sector for 15 years now and with just two organizations. And both of those organizations, I've, I'm able to see my purpose in those organizations and the purpose that those organizations have had for me in my per- personal and professional development. I feel like both of we have served each other. You know, I feel very grateful for the journey that I've been on and, and the ways in which I've been able to be of service. But again, just humbly feel like these organizations have also been in service to me and my family as well.
0: Did you feel like you were exposed to social injustices as a young, did you suffer? Were you exposed to or in a community that was suffering a lot of social injustice, whether it was economic or racial? Mm -hmm. I mean, not that you weren't aware. Mm -hmm. Certainly we're in Los Angeles. Of course this stuff is happening everywhere, but were you in a community where that was really present? Mm
1: -hmm. Not necessarily. I mean, I, I would say like My mom is the one who really exposed me to the importance of giving back and and being involved in in just social justice issues. She was always, in addition to like being a full-time career woman and taking care of her kids, she was also always of service and would take us with her to like her, you know, Hispanic Women's Council meetings. And so she always had a strong affinity towards just being altruistic and, and involved us in that. I didn't really experience Racism or social injustice myself until I was in college and and you know experienced as a Latina going to USC. I mean, before that, I was in my own kind of bubble uh, where everyone looked like me. It was very much sheltered. It was all like my friends were either Latina or Asian, so there wasn't a lot of diversity within my community. So it wasn't until I went to SC that I experienced firsthand for myself racism and then met people who, you know, grew up, you know, in the south and experienced racism right on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, and what forms did that take for you? What does that mean? Is it name calling? Is it what is that like?
1: No, I think it's kind of like when you hear now it's like microaggression, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Where you can't necessarily put your finger on it, but like, for example, at SC, like I'm not approached to like uh, join a sorority, for example, like the mainstream white sororities. I'm not being approached to like mm. rush a sorority. There was a, a specific incident where I was with my girlfriends. The, you know, they're all women of color. We go to a, a football party with, you know, it was there were the white football parties and the black football parties. So we went mm. to a white football party and, you know, the cheerleaders that were there were like, you guys need to pay to be here. And it, it was clearly like they were trying to exclude us. I'm like, nobody else here has paid to be at this party. Wow. So there were, there were those types of things. I think also just being in the classroom setting and being like one of a handful of Latinas, you know, in a, in a large lecture where there's like hundreds of students and I'm like one of the only uh, women of color that was, for me, it Was it there was definitely a culture shock. And I started to, like, before that, when people would say, oh, you know, we're part of a minority group, I, I didn't really experience that until I went to SC. And when I say that, you know, the kind of more intense ra- racism I was talking about in the South wasn't something I experienced. That was in reference to friends that I had met who grew up in the South and and explained to me you know, what they went through Mm. um, growing up as a person of color in the South. And that to me was just like shocking, you know, like I couldn't believe just the level of really intense racism that still existed in our country. When you grow up in a place like Los Angeles, it's not, at least for me, that wasn't, you know, I have that privilege where, you know, I'm a light-skinned Latina, so I didn't have the same level of, you know, overt racism, but I did experience it a bit at, at SC. Wow.
0: Yeah. So for you that must only fuel your fire for social change.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also you know, my friends being first generation to go to college, I'm actually second generation. My mom graduated from USC also.
2: Oh, Granted,
1: cool. you know, it wasn't like a traditional college experience. She had two kids by the time she graduated. Wow. But I just felt like, man, if it's hard for me to navigate a place like USC, I just couldn't imagine my friends who were first generation to go to college or first generation to even graduate from high school, just to not have the support. I always had my mom's support, especially in terms of my education. You know, she helped guide me, she helped support me in like figuring out the application process, all of that. She provided me with support and guidance, and uh, it definitely fueled my passion for for being involved in social justice work because I felt like, man, there's so many people that don't come from the same like level playing field. There's so much injustice. And so um, have definitely felt just as passionate now as I did 15 years ago about the path that I'm on professionally.
0: So you graduate UT Austin. You've broadened your spiritual horizons. You now have experience of what racism is like both personally and in a larger sense. You're really fired up about social justice something you told me off mic was just how important Proyecto Pastoral was to you when you discovered that coming out of your master's. Talk to me about what that experience meant to you, what it was like leaving it, and how it folds into your family life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that what really struck me about Proyecto is that when I think about Jesus and I think about God's work is just really being at the margins with those who are marginalized, standing hand in hand with those who are normally cast out by society. And Proyecto really did that. I think the and does that still today. So I think the biggest example is the Guadalupe Homeless Project, which is a homeless shelter, which is run by Proyecto, but it's in partnership with Dolores Mission Church. So the men sleep in the church. And I mean, this is something that you don't, you don't hear about often, right. In communities that you have a homeless shelter that's like in your church and also located right across the street from Dolores mission school. Mm. The The shelter has now expanded to include um, women. And so, you know, the men and women eat breakfast and dinner in the cafeteria at the school. So wow. for me, this is where like, the students are. Yes, where wow. the students go to school. Yes, they have breakfast and dinner at the school. And that's part of like the religious formation for the students is that they cook and serve dinner at least once a year and sit down and have dinner at least once a year with the shelter residents. How beautiful. Wow. And so that for me is like, I remember the first time I cooked dinner at the shelter and sat down and had a meal, shared a meal with the shelter residents when I started at Proyecto, I was like, I just had like that Holy Spirit moment where like my body just started tingling. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm here, like this is where I'm meant to be. So I just had such a profound experience at Proyecto because of, of experiences like the one I described and just the women, the mothers of the community. I mean, these are incredibly strong women. They are immigrants themselves and their children were being killed in the streets, right? Because of gang violence. And so they decided to take to the streets and start peace walks in the middle of like gunfire. Like Boyle Heights was a war zone when Father Greg Boyle started there as the pastor uh, at Dolores Mission. And the women were like, we're tired of our kids dying. And so they decided to just start Peace Walks and walking in the street. And so I was so like, just moved by the women of the community and felt so honored. Like I, they were like my celebrities, you know, like when I got to talk to them and just felt like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> I get to talk to these like incredible leaders. I'm getting so emotional. <laughs> yeah. um, because I just, I really felt like, so fortunate to be part of that work. So I poured my whole self into Proyecto. I was primarily responsible for fundraising. And when I started there, we had a $300,000 deficit when I started and we were having to lay people off. I mean, it was, and this was like my first professional job. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, And I didn't have a lot of experience with fundraising, but just very quickly had to learn. And I think between, you know, Cynthia, who's now the executive director, she was she's only a couple years older than me. So we were both in our mid-20s when we started as leaders in this organization. And just really quickly between the two of us, and of course everyone else in the organization wasn't just us single-handedly, but I think in terms of the fundraising aspect, like we really we just figured it out together. You know, it was a it was a heavy lift, but I would spend countless hours working and it definitely, my, at the time, you know, my, my husband, who was then my boyfriend, we got together just a year before I started with Proyecto. So it was definitely challenging to balance, you know, having a, a, a healthy relationship and giving the time and attention our relationship deserved. And when I felt so passionate about the work we were doing at Proyecto and it was really hard for me to create those boundaries and so I think that, you know, once I started a family and had my first daughter, Alejandra, it became very clear to me that if I wanted to be more balanced and I wanted to be a good mother, that I needed to find another position where I could I could just have a little bit more balance, you know, and, and be the kind of mom I wanted to be built, be more present. But it was a very challenging decision for me to leave Proyecto. I think You know, like I mentioned, I was there almost eight eight years and about five years in was the first time I started to think like, okay, maybe it's time for me to transition. So it took me about two and a half years to finally cut the cord. And I think one of the things that kept me feeling hopeful that I wouldn't lose that passion was just that I I knew that I could still stay involved. Like, and, and that's the thing about Dolores Mission is like, once you're part of that community, I mean, it's rare that someone just complete completely cuts themselves off. So, I continue to be involved. I'm on the 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 board for the school for Dolores Mission School. That's where my my daughter's attend school. There, my daughter Alejandra is in fourth grade, and my daughter Emma's in um, kinder. And then my husband now he's been working for Dolores Mission. I think for almost three years as part of the development team, fundraising for. The school and the church. And we got married at Dolores Mission and we baptized our girls at Dolores Mission. So I I imagine that it's this community is gonna be part of our lives for, you know, the years to come.
0: Wow. Well, that's a beautiful story. So we don't have an enormous amount of time to talk about this other huge thing that you transitioned to, which is now you're the executive director of a very big nonprofit in Mm -hmm. Camp Ronald McDonald for Good Times. Correct. Can you tell me briefly what that work is like? Obviously, it's clearly very important to you. Something that I think is really, uh, that stood out to me in your bio is you talking about this organization is the only one that has a Spanish language oncology Mm -hmm. camp. So that's something obviously very close to your heart, keeps you close Mm -hmm. to the community. In that way, you talk about having taken the job partly because you needed to be a mother more. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still feel like you're able to make the kind of impact that you you love doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I started with Camp Ronald McDonald, I was the development director, so I didn't start as the executive director. Okay, um, and I started out part time, so I was there four days a week. So when I started with Camp, it's definitely professionally what I needed. I wasn't familiar with the camp environment. I didn't really, I didn't grow up going to camp. So I definitely felt like the mission of serving children with cancer and their families. I mean, how can you not get around that? But I wasn't sure that after having such an intense love affair with Proyecto, so it was like, how do you now transition into something else, right? Yeah. And so I kind of saw camp as like my um, my in-between Job. I didn't see myself staying at camp for very long. I thought I would do something again, more grassroots, more focused on the Latino community. But I became a convert when I went up to, to family camp for the first time. Uh, family camp is for children with cancer zero to eight, and the whole family goes up. And so the family camp that I went to, the one you mentioned, was Campamento Familiar, which is our Spanish language camp. And so we, we are the only Spanish language camp, oncology camp in Southern California. There are others, um, but ours is the only one in Southern California. And there's a moment during camp when the parents just sit around in a circle. All of their kids are being entertained by camp counselors. So oftentimes, this is the first time that the parents get to be alone without their children. Or sometimes it's been, you know, a year longer because of, the intensity of of cancer and what it means the impact on the family Mm. so for me to sit in that parent meeting and just hear the devastation of cancer on the entire family um and then the layers of issues and challenges that families were dealing with and we had families who were homeless and living in their car and still had a child with cancer like you don't think you think like This is the hardest thing. Like your child has cancer. This has to be it. And it's like, no, um, there are other issues that our families are already dealing with on top of now having to um, navigate through the challenges of childhood cancer. So when I understood the gravity and the importance of the work that camp did and the type of transformation that it creates in the lives of the children, the parents, the support that's created, the immense relief, the the psychological, emotional, and spiritual healing that happens at camp—that's when I said, "Okay, I'm not just here for a short period of time." Like I became quickly very much invested in the work that we do, uh, because I see the transformation. I mean, I think especially now in this day and age, what we're craving is connection. We're craving a genuine. Compassion, um, empathy, understanding. And, and that's camp. I mean, it's such a utopic place. And like you go there and the love is just palpable. Like whether people are there or not, it's like a holy land.
2: Mm-hmm. Again,
1: I felt like, okay, God has led me to this place and I'm here to be in service to camp. And camp has been in service to me. I mean, my, my daughters have grown up going to camp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been such a, a critical part of of who I am now. And I've fallen in love with Kemp the the same way I did with Proyecto. Um, But for sure, like, it's different because now I have a family and now I have a lot more experience (laughs) professionally. So I transitioned into the executive director role three years ago, three and a half years ago now. So now I am at the same level of intensity that I was at, you know, with Proyecto in terms of the position. It's definitely... Very rigorous and and challenging. And as much as, you know, it it was a challenge to raise funds at Proyecto, but it's it's a challenge to raise funds for camp as well. Because even though we have a partnership with McDonald's and they are an incredible corporate supporter, they they fund about 10% of our, our budget. We have to raise the additional 90%. We don't receive any government funding. And our commitment to our family is that camp remains completely cost-free um, mm. so that they're able to attend. So that includes transportation, lodging, all the activities, everything. And so, you know, fundraising, I think in the nonprofit sector, it's just challenging no matter how small or how big your organization.
0: Fatima, these are some really powerful endeavors that you've been involved in. And, it's really moving to hear the stories and I love connecting with people that are doing work that is involved with so much healing and the installation of hope and comfort so it's really powerful stuff you have a really interesting story thank you so much for sharing it I mean like honestly I have so many more questions I want to get to like (laughs) You know, I just feel like I need to hear more about your mom. and <laughs> But I I really appreciate this story. I think it's, I think probably one of the things, I, I sort of talked about this already, but something that I think is just very powerful about your story is that you happen to be one of these people that from a very young age, that despite a lot of the challenges that you were facing, you, you, um oh, I hear what's going on. There's children there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, That's great. What a beautiful way to end it. (laughs)
0: No, that's such a beautiful way to end it. Like, shut up, Nick. It's all good. It's over. Show was great. Fatima was great. Story's great. Everybody heard it. Now we've got the kids there. Fatima, thank you so much for, for doing this, for being a part of this and for sharing your story.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, I haven't really delved so deep in such a long time to think reminiscing, you know, you just kind of like live day to day and you're not sitting there mulling over like, you know, the past and stuff. I mean, I like to just keep moving forward. So just the opportunity to like really process a lot of this was, was really a, a gift. So I appreciate it very much.
0: Oh, well, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, it was an honor you know, my love to your family and, and to all of your work, you know, I wish you just the absolute best. Thank you. All right. And thank you all for listening.
2: You
1: know, I ended up, Connecting with my husband when I was twenty-five, and that's when I, you know, started my.
2: Yeah,
1: when I was in grad school. Yeah. Okay. Um, I met through a friend. Oh, I see. And he was my first boyfriend, and like, yeah, that was it. He was like my one and only boyfriend, and oh, now my, my husband. Gosh,
0: you didn't even date when you were in high school.
1: Not really. No. Oh really my date. goodness! <laughs>
0: my goodness! I
1: dated a little bit, like maybe two or three guys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I want you to know, Fatima, this is not normally how much chatting I have to do about a story, but your story has sort of, it started so many interesting courses for me that I need to tie them all up now. (laughs) Okay.